thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And after I finished last week's podcast and indicated it was the end of this little mini-series, I realized that there was actually um, something that needed to be added to it. So today, I'm going to look at what I will call the ancient philosophical questions that transgenderism presents and how the doctrine of the Trinity and creation ex nihilo resolve those questions. Part of my purpose in doing this is to help you understand that we're not really faced with anything that's new. What we are faced with are ancient issues, and we can have the hope and the encouragement of knowing that the answers found in the ancient of days that transformed pagan Greek and Roman cultures that grappled with these issues, particularly the Greek, transformed them. And we wound up over time with Christendom throughout Eastern and Western Europe. So I hope it's encouraging to you to know that we're not dealing with something that's new under the sun that we've never seen before and oh my goodness where are we going to find an answer to this we're dealing with the same things under the sun and the one who created the sun has the answers for that which is under the sun now the three great philosophical questions were these and then i'll come back and explain them whether being or becoming is more fundamental to the nature of the cosmos and to us as human beings. The second would be what we would call nominalism or realism, which is more fundamentally true about the nature of things and human beings. And the third is that of unity and diversity, or as I've often couched it, unity and differentiation. Which of those two is more fundamentally true about the nature of the cosmos and what it means to be human? Now, let me come back and speak to what each of those is now dealing with since I've articulated them. The question of being or becoming is whether there is essentially anything true about the nature of things, and in particular, human beings, because that's our focus. It's what we would call matters of ontology. Is there an essence of truth about things? And, and is that fundamentally true, or is everything in a state of flux or becoming? Now, this was the ancient debate in the 5th century between Parmenides and Heraclitus. Parmenides said that whatever is, is. And while that sounds kind of silly, like Bill Clinton years ago saying, you know, in answering a question about sex, depends on what is, is. Parmenides was making the point that if there's not an essence to something, if there's not something that's really true and fixed and given about it, then it's really nothing. It's just potential, which is 
potentially anything or potentially nothing. Heraclitus said, well, things have an existence, but it's always in the state of flux and becoming, and he's the one who made the statement you may have heard, no person ever steps into the same river twice. That once you step into the river and get out, when you step back in, the water you step in is not the water you stepped in the first time. So which of those is more fundamentally true about the nature of things, the nature of us? Obviously, the transgender community, and to be honest, those who lead in government and law today believe that becoming is more fundamental to who we are. That's why the transgendered lawyer said that transgenderism is just a, a natural variation of human existence, right? Now, when we get to nominalism and realism, the, the question is really more of the kind that was between Plato and Aristotle. Is there something that's real or fundamentally true about things that allow us to classify them? That all of these are human beings versus animal, all of these are males uh, versus all of these are females, or do we live in a world in which there are just particular things? So that's that's where Plato was saying, no, there are these ideals, there are these forms of things that are really true about classifications of existence. And Aristotle was saying, well, we really can't know those, but we can know that this is a hickory tree and this is a oak tree. And, you know, that's as far as we can go. So that's that issue. The, the other tension was between unity and differentiation or diversity, which is more fundamentally true about the nature of things. Is the true nature of things that they should be of one and united or separate and diverse? Now what's ironic about that is you can have a diversity that is so broad that it becomes a unity. That in other words, everything is subsumed in the unity, and that's really what the cleric was saying last week. We just love whatever is becoming, and all that you're becoming, and whatever you next become. Everything's worthy of dignity, and so there's a just big lumblolly of unity here. Okay, and we can't really say, well, this becoming is a bad becoming. This becoming is a good becoming. So. Even though she spoke in the sense of a great diversity, there was really fundamentally a unity that all things partake of one and whatever they're becoming is just fine and hunky-dory, okay? So how does Christianity answer these questions or resolve these tensions, these dualisms? Uh, and the reason I want to cover that today, and I thought I needed to add this to last three weeks, is that it's not just enough to criticize something. To say, oh, well, you know, they, uh, they believe in nominalism when they should believe in realism, or they believe in unity when they should believe in differentiation and diversity, or they believe in becoming when they should believe in being. I mean, sure, we, that's good that we can classify that, but is there an answer to that? Is there, is there an answer to which is more fundamentally true or right? Is the transgenderism community correct in these things, or are they wrong, or 
is there a way to reconcile these things? And the answer is yes, there is, but they're only reconciled and resolved in God and in the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. Reject God, reject those doctrines, and you wind up living in a tension you can't resolve, questions you can't answer, and in a state of constant dualistic thinking, vacillating from one side to the next and back to the other. So how does the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, answer these questions? And that's what I want to look at over the next few minutes. Because God's unity exists in Trinity, and Trinity exists in unity, it's the, the, the oneness and unity of God is not greater or more fundamental to who God is than the diversity. And because creation reveals the glory of the triune God, we should expect that all creation is intended to reveal in a creaturely way a unity or harmony within its diversity or differentiation and vice versa. Or put another way, because there's a unity of essence in God, an ontological unity, yet a differentiation of persons and functions, what the theologians would have called the economic functions within the Trinity. Economic not meaning financial, but meaning the ordering of things. We should expect to find that in creation. If it's revealing him, it's going to reveal this unity and diversity. Now, taking this more narrowly then to humanity, not the creation as a whole, we do see male and female, a differentiation. Now, interestingly, though, as I'm sure you've probably heard, the only thing God said of the original creation that wasn't good was the singularity of Adam, even though individually he was made in the image of God. So what is not good about Adam is not that somehow he is not made in the image of God, but what is being said is that God, whose glory can't be contained in or limited by all of creation. I mean, that's Acts 17.24. Even its most remotest and most unseen points, we see that in Psalm 139. He could not have his image adequately revealed by one solitary person or, get this, even any number of persons like Adam. So what we're talking about taking place here in the garden is not just Adam needed an extra hand to tend the garden or he needed an extra hand to uh, subdue the earth. Because um, that's if all he needed, he could have made a million Adams, right? And he didn't. So here's what we see happening. The father who did not create the son. See, that would be a heresy. It would break the ontological unity. But who from all eternity generates the son in keeping with his generative nature as father brings forth from Adam a woman. So even as the Son of God was not created separately and apart from the Father, woman was not created separately and apart from Adam. There is an ontological unity within the Godhead 
even as there is in the persons of male and female. What God is showing us in real-life imaging, let's say, is differentiation without ontological subordination. So what we would say here is ontologically, in terms of their essence, a woman is the same as Adam, and she is to join the man in subduing that which is not the garden. That's the directive given to, quote, them in Genesis 1, 28. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on earth. But even as the Father and the Son are differentiated in their external works of creation and providence and salvation, so are man and woman. In other words, what we're seeing here is that the creation of man and woman is a living flesh and bones incarnational allegory revealing the glory of God. God was giving us living pictures of that which would finally be revealed at Pentecost when we would come to know the fullness of the triune being of God. Similarly, when God brought to Adam a bride from his side, he was giving the world another living allegory of a reality that was to become manifest, namely Jesus bringing forth his bride through his pierced side, from which flowed the blood for atonement and the water for purifying. We also find that as Jesus was to be the head of his bride, the church, God gave us a living picture of that in appointing Adam to be a Christ-like head in relation to his bride, Eve, loving her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now I'm going to touch on something controversial here. But I think it's controversial because we have a Trinitarian heresy floating throughout the institutional church. And it deals with this question of headship. In the garden, where God is to meet his image bearers, God gives Adam, prior to the creation of Eve, notice now this is in chapter 2, the command to tend and cultivate the garden, as distinct from their mutual directive to fill the earth and subdue it. So Adam's first responsibility with respect to the care of this meeting place with God was to communicate to Eve the word of God, which was commanded to man not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God is giving us a living allegory of, of really the first church service and its ordering, which explains the historical retelling of the story of Adam and Eve in Paul's instructions to Timothy about the ordering of worship in the church. Now that passage has flummoxed folks for a long time who can't keep straight this doctrine of the Trinity and the notion that the creation of Adam and Eve is revealing to us um, the glory of the triune God in, in Timothy, it notes that he says the, the man should teach and, and not be under the authority of the, wor of the woman. And he says, because Adam was created first and Eve was second. And then it says, and woman was deceived and Adam wasn't. Now, what is he doing there? 
He is giving us history that was to have a meaning. Adam was created first. He's not making an ontological statement about men in the church. He's making a historical statement. The first part was Adam was created first. The second part was Eve was deceived and Adam wasn't. He's not saying that women were ontologically made to be more gullible, more susceptible to deception. That's an ontological heresy. What he's talking about here is that there are economic functions within the church, even as they are in the, in the Godhead, and we find the example for these economic functions in the creation order. So, again, as I said a couple of weeks ago, maybe last week, every heresy in the church comes from some kind of Trinitarian error. And I'll, I'll go ahead and add here while I'm at it that Eve, as we're told, was created to correspond to Adam in the economic function of fulfilling God's directive to multiply and fill the earth. Again, it's not some ontological statement that it's superior to be a man and inferior to be a, a, you know, a childbearer or there's a greater strength or weakness in one or the other. Adam, as I said earlier, was a living allegory of the generative father. He's the generator of children through Eve, who will give birth to image bearers. This interdependence is mentioned in the scripture, that woman came from man and man through the woman, and they're both pointing to God. So the Trinity gives us an answer to this question of unity and diversity that says both are fundamental about us if we have a proper understanding of the distinction between ontology and economics. You see? So what happens a lot of times in our culture is we collapse economic functions into ontology and, and treat certain people as less than human beings made in the image of God, or, or we collapse our ontology into economic functions. So we start saying, well, this person, this woman, is a, is a better preacher in terms of natural giftedness and speaking ability and elocution and all of that than, than the man, so she should be the pastor. Well, that may be true, but that's where we're confusing ontological things and economic things. Let me move on. Nominalism. Nominalism, as I said earlier, looks at things as saying the essence of the thing is found in the thing itself. So, here's how this works in respect to the creation of Adam and Eve. Adam is a particular image bearer in contradistinction to Eve. But Adam, who is a male, is called a son of God in Luke's genealogy of Jesus. And Jesus is ontologically a physical male and spiritually the father's son. Jesus' favorite description of himself is son of man. Therefore, the Christian believes the names son and man given by God to biological males 
reveal and speak to an eternal ontological reality found in God as creator. Moreover, because Adam is a generative being, he is named a father because he reveals the heavenly father who eternally generates or begets the son. So therefore, the name father given to the male reveals and speaks to an eternal ontological reality found in God as creator. Now, what, what, what is the importance of this? Remember last week, we said that, that names were just placeholders for things as they became, as they moved into the newest thing. So that the word marriage did not have a real name, okay? It was just a placeholder for this thing we called marriage. And now that marriage has evolved from that relationship between a man and a woman to, to two men and two women or a man and a woman, the name marriage now means something else. And when three can marry, well, then marriage will be a relationship between any two or more people who may or may not be of the same sex. So that's what nominalism would say. The word marriage doesn't really speak to anything that's real. It's just a name we gave to a thing. And, and the meaning of that word changes as the realities change. So I hope, hope that makes sense. This is not easy stuff, but, but I hope that makes sense. So the Christian would say, no, 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 that's not true. There are individual things. There is truly a man and there is a woman and there is a child you know but but the names that we give to those things are not just placeholders they're communicating something real about that to which we've given this name so a man a biological male let's say will never be a woman or a mother or a bride and a biological female will never be a man, a son, a husband, or a father. Just not possible. And the meaning of these terms are understood in contradistinction to the other. So what I'm saying here then, in that sense, is that it would be impossible for a man to have a husband or a woman to have a wife or bride. That's a confusion of categories of real being and real existence tied to the names. It would be like confusing the categories of color and smell and saying, what does red smell like? Well, red doesn't have a smell. I can distinguish red from blue, but I don't know what you mean when you talk about the color of red smells like what? You see? So the doctrine of the Trinity and the creation say that there is a nominalism that's true about the existence of particular things, but the particular things have a reality to them, and the names correspond to that reality, and they don't change in their essence. Okay, now we come to the last point about being and becoming. And again, the doctrine of the Trinity and of creation ex nihilo gives us an answer to which is more fundamentally true 
And as you might suspect, with the way we've answered the previous two questions, both are fundamentally true. Adam was created in the image of God, as was Eve. They are different. There is a differentiation, not ontologically, but in their function economically. There is a reality, and there is the nominalism of particular persons. But Adam was not created in his final state. This is how Herman Bobbick puts it. Adam was not possessed of the highest kind of life. The highest kind of life is the material freedom consisting of not being able to err, sin, or die. See, Adam was created such that if he sinned, he would die. He would have to die. He had undone himself and become undone and separated himself from that which provides his existence. But it was possible for him to move to a state of glory. So we are created beings who are becoming. We are becoming glorious beings or we are becoming hideous ones. So you see how the doctrine of the creation and the doctrine of the Trinity on which the doctrine of creation is grounded and founded answers the great questions of life that the transgendered person is trying to answer. Yes, there is a beautiful differentiation among all of us because it takes all of us to begin to even approach the infinite beauty and diversity of God. We need billions of, of image bearers to begin to get a picture of what it looks like to bear the image of God. But there is a reality to that image that we're made male and female. There's a reality, there's a nominalism, there's a particularity, there's a being, there's a becoming. There is a unity and there is a diversity. And that's how we fit in God's cosmos. And we won't fit as long as we refuse his answer and pick one side or the other. Because we'll go through life essentially limping. Well, now I think I've closed this section on transgenderism and what took place in front of the Tennessee House. And I hope you'll join me next week as we start something new on God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.